I think there's an expectation as a woman, as a leader, you have to be nurturing and you have to be caring. In the past, I've kind of resented a little bit. I felt that people really expected from me a kind of nurturing and kind and motherly sort of attitude that I just didn't have. It just wasn't me. But someone used a phrase to me very early on when I was at Lionhead about what the purpose of leadership was. And yet, oftentimes it's to absorb a lot of the pressure and absorb the damage, right? And the messaging and ensure that people feel secure to do the work that they need to do. Hi, I am Sophie Vaux, and this is the Rise and Play podcast. In the show, I sit down with influential thought leaders of the gaming industry to deconstruct how they create the best team and company cultures in order to create the best games. Every episode brings actionable insight to improve your leadership, self-awareness, and emotional management skills. Because becoming a better leader starts with becoming a better human. So, are you ready to unlock your full potential in life and business? Let's begin. Don't just see the future, know the future with today's sponsor, Solsten. They make it easy to identify how your audiences and players actually play and what keeps them coming back for more. In a previous life, I used Solsten Product Navigator for a game in soft launch and discovered that my audience was more complex than I thought. Instead of one homogeneous group, I was able to identify two unique persona, take a series of calculated risks in our game design, and strike a balance between the two groups. Our approach shifted from making a game for everyone to creating a personal experience for our most valuable players. And we were able to put our resources and time to good use and launch our game with a high level of confidence in its success. Visit go.sourcen.io slash riseandplay, that's S-O-L-S-T-E-N, for a demo and receive 30% off your first Sourcen engagement crafted to your studio's needs. Learn why EA, Supercell, Wooga, and more use Sourcen to create the best human-centric gaming experiences possible. Hi everyone, welcome to a new episode of Rise and Play, and today I wanted to let you know that It is a special episode because I will not be hosting it with uh, one of my traditional guests, but I will be hosting other leaders who also wanted to share their learnings in a leadership conversation. So today we have Maria Sayans, the CEO of Us2 Games, and with Daniel Gray, the Chief Creative Officer, and both are having a conversation, you know, casual conversation about what it is to be a leader at us two games and what are the challenges they're facing and the reflection thoughts they have i hope you enjoy this special episode today hey danny hello how are you good good so we're going to be talking about leadership should we do like a quick round of intros for people watching yeah all right i'm maria sayans i'm the ceo at us two games And I've done quite a lot of gaming in my history, about 20 years in the industry, but mostly on AAA and PC. And I joined Astro Games four years ago, and it's been my first job in mainly mobile. What about you, Danny? Yeah, I'm Danny Gray. I'm Chief Creative Officer at Astro Games. So I've been at Us2 for it was my 10 years in February and probably about 15, 16 years in total, but pure games industry. Some big, some small, and then about where we are, which is about kind of midway 
So we're going to talk about leadership and we thought it'd be good to maybe just start with our own insights into, hey, you know, we weren't born into positions of leadership and we've all had a journey and we've probably learned through people who've inspired us and mistakes that we've made. So maybe we start by kind of reflecting on our own journeys. So my first memory of, okay, observing a leader and saying, oh, that's what a leader does. How do I learn from that? I was an intern during university at a management consulting company called McKinsey. And I was like the baby intern that was there to help other people make photocopies and do whatever was asked of me. And I had been asked to work on some form of Excel model, except this is so long ago, it was probably Lotus Notes or something like way before Excel. But anyway, I had been working on some models and analytics that they'd asked me to do. And I was in this kind of office when the partner, the most senior person arrived and I was the first person there. And then he arrived and he said, okay, I want to look at uh, this analysis that you've been working on. And I said, oh, that's great. Oh, there is no coffee. Shall I make you some coffee? And he said, no, I'll make the coffee for the whole team while you set up your computer with a model. And and that was my first reaction of, okay, well, I thought I was the intern. I had to make the coffee. But I guess my observation at the time was, as a leader, you do whatever is needed to support the team. And sometimes the most useful thing you can do for the team is make the coffee. And I think that's something that our producers know very well. You know, that's kind of one of the things you learn as a producer. But I think I took that lesson at that point is there is no job too small. You do whatever is needed for the success of the team. I often come back to that moment, but I have to say my style has evolved over the years. And like I said, we're not born knowing how to be leaders. And I think that many times through my career that I think, well, I wasn't a great leader or, you know, I wish I had done better than that. And I think a lot of the moments at which I maybe didn't live up to my standards or I didn't to, to the person I wanted to be had to do with maybe being too focused on success and not necessarily my own success, but the success of the team to focus on results, not focused enough on team and not focused enough on the health of the team. And I think that, you know, we'll talk about sort of the special challenges or the unique things that for women come with leadership. But at least for me, you know, having been born in Spain in the seventies, having been raised in a relatively conservative environment, navigating sort of what's the right balance between focus on team and focus on results is something that I've learned over the years. I think it took me into my late 30s, early 40s. And I remember meeting a lot of really kick-ass Icelandic women when I was working at CCP Games and them really inspiring me. Some of them worked in my team, some of them worked in other teams, but there was something about the way that I guess Icelandic women are raised and Icelandic people. I was going to say, do you think that's due down to a bit more of a kind of egalitarian society? Absolutely. Gender, well, right? there's the egalitarian aspect. And then there's just the general aspect of Icelandic culture of there are no experts. Everybody's just figuring it out and you just take it on and solve it. And don't overthink it. And so I think these women that I worked with, they gave me a lot of a good sense of actually, this is how you balance being both personal and authentic and warm, but also not taking any shit from anybody. And I think that I always aspire to this idea of 
the servant leadership. And I think that story that I told about my beginning at McKinsey illustrates that, that idea of you do whatever is needed for the success of the team. The vision of what I wanted to be like as a leader hasn't necessarily changed, but it's more my ability to maybe do that or how I think that I can actually do that. I think with time, I've become more able to put trust on people's talent and on their commitment and their drive and less on kind of maybe micromanaging and fear that we weren't going to deliver or that we were going to fail. And still, I feel like I'm always learning. It's all a journey. What about you? It never stops, right? Because you end up with like a new person is another problem to solve or a new team or a new project or a new company or a new partner or anything else. I was thinking about like the beginning of leadership journey. And, you know, one of my first bosses was my mum, right? And not just in the family. I worked at Tesco when I was 16. And for probably half the shifts I did over a number of years, my mum was my own supervisor, which is the most good thing in a way, but it was funny to see how someone I understood so well dealt with running a team of people and doing it with love in the same way that I guess that she was with me as a mother, thinking about it from, yeah, how do you balance that kind of love and encouragement with just being quite strict and a bit of a badass at times? So yeah, learning a lot from my mum in that sense. But when it first came to kind of games industry stuff, my first job I had was, I got a job in QA at Lionhead Studios. And the guy who was my manager at the time gave my first job in games called Nathan Smethurst. He was hardcore. I know it seems like a cliche, but he was very kind of firm but fair, right? And on top of that, he was very protective over QA. And I think that was the first time I'd seen someone go, you really knew he had your back. Like it was almost like your team above all else as well. You knew that when he was going into a meeting room, he was demanding that you guys got paid, right? And he was demanding that we didn't do so many hours. and as well sometimes sacrificing himself, right, and his own happiness to try and achieve some of those things. Even from those early stages as well at Lionhead, I had the the kind of two ends of the spectrum because, you know, I was fortunate enough to spend a lot of time with Peter Molyneux and knowing that, wow, your voice has weight, right? Like you can speak and that inspires people to do things. Like even to the point where not everything needs to be explained. Like you sometimes you can lead by a vibe, lead by a feeling. People can follow you into the unknown, right, as well, because games is such an unknown creative venture that sometimes you can't do it with process, you can't do it with functional language, you can only do it with inspirational language, and then your team goes, I don't know where we're going, right, or how we're going to get there, but I believe in your ability to get there and and the thing that you're selling me right now. So, yeah, those two kind of balanced things, really, of what does it mean to be really protective, quite strict with that kind of stuff, but also yeah, the softer side and the inspirational side of stuff. And I think that's where I've tried to do my own thing over that time. But much like you, you know, it's very much a change. Like I remember when we were building those two games up and, you know, there was no one to be a leader at that time. We were very flat, but we needed to have a leader. I was really reticent to put myself in that position. I was really insecure about it. I was technically and job-wise like the leader at the time, but when we would sit on the sofas and do team meetings, I was sat with everyone on the sofa and I was I was so desperate to be seen as like one of the people. And it wasn't until about six months later that one of the team pulled me to one side and they said, you know, it's not bad 
that you sit at the front and you speak to everyone. People want to feel like somebody's in charge. They want to feel the security. They want to know somebody's looking out for them. So you don't have to feel like a hierarchy is necessarily a bad thing. Like people know that you're going to do what's right for them and you're going to listen to them. But to know that you're taking control is going to let everyone else kind of go at ease. So yeah, part of my journey was kind of getting over that insecurity a lot of the way and and knowing that being clear and concise and being decisive is a good thing for people sometimes and not always a super hierarchical bad thing. Yeah, that's definitely one that I had to learn the hard way along the way that we feel like we don't deserve being on that spotlight, yeah. taking too much of the light for myself, when actually what you're doing is you're not giving people the space and giving them the safety. And you're absorbing the pressure, right? Like, yeah. I'm not going to say it actually because it involves a swear word, but someone used a phrase to me very early on when I was at Lionhead about what the purpose of leadership was. And yet, Oftentimes it's to absorb a lot of the pressure and absorb the damage, right? And the messaging and ensure that people feel secure to do the work that they need to do. And it's not always easy to do that, right? Mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier some of the challenges I think that as women we face, and you've touched upon your first boss being your mom. So I'm sure we both have some observations on what's it like for women and whether there are unique challenges. Can I ask you a question on that? Because I wanted to ask yeah. you at the time, but I didn't want go, to go, interrupt go. the intro, right? And I'm saying this from somebody who isn't a woman, but how do you manage to get that balance between a lot of traditional and stereotypical leadership attributes are hyper-masculine things, right? Like you said, being super targets driven and being super decisive and doing all this stuff, which we know is not the case. Lots of men who can't do that. Lots of women who can do that. But I think in quite an old school way, how do you battle the idea of saying you shouldn't have to exhibit all of those hyper-masculine traits to be a leader, right? Like, what's it like to face that pressure, both in your previous jobs and kind of now, really? Yeah, I think very often the pressure comes from yourself, right? I, I mentioned I was, you know, I was born in Spain in the 70s in a Navy household. You know, both my father and my grandfather were in the Navy under Franco. You know, so you can imagine that there is a lot of, like, discipline and respect, a lot of good values in many ways. But I always remember just feeling that in all of that, a lot of the things that I admired and respected and the things that felt worth having were very masculine things. I remember playing games in the schoolyard or whatever you call it, and I wanted to play with the boys, some game based on some TV show that involved a lot of pew, pew, pew. And they told me, yeah, you can be the medic the nurse. I'm like, I don't want to be the nurse. I want to be the pew, pew, pew. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I think throughout my career, as you start to take positions of responsibility, you're being asked to go into women in leadership speaking opportunities or into work tasks. And I always felt like, I don't want to do that. Like, that's not me. Do you feel like you had to overcompensate in those areas to be looked at the same way as men? Absolutely. Yeah. But I think I also put myself into industries that were quite male dominated. I think if I had chosen different industries, maybe it would have been different. You started in quite a hardcore space, right? Yes. But I think that a lot of that are structures that we put ourselves in kind of how we view the world, right? I've come to realize over the years that I had a lot of internalized misogyny. I remember when I was at REA, just always wanting to prove myself, being the one that was actually demoing the game on stage. Even if it was a shooter and I was terrible at shooters, I practiced, like I rehearsed that demo 
until all hours at night so that I could do it on stage so that they wouldn't call a more junior product manager just because he was a man to do it for me. So, and I remember when I was given the job to go and head up Battlefield Marketing out of Stockholm, feeling like, right, I can play with the big boys now. Now I can be in that schoolyard going pew, pew, pew. <laughs> and that's why meeting later a lot of the Scandinavian women and the Icelandic women it really helped me realize that there was so much that was quite screwed up in how I saw leadership, in how I saw influence, in how I saw team relationships and how do you influence each other. So I think I've actually come to realize that particularly in games, there's so much uncertainty in terms of where the industry is going, in terms of how teams are going to get there, in terms of what the game is actually going to be like that these very top-down, old-fashioned ways of leading just don't work because you don't know. You have to figure it out as you go along. But there is a lot of like these toxic ideas of leadership that we receive as men or as women, right? And you have to kind of break it up and unpack it and hopefully work with people that offer you alternatives to how to do that. Did you feel that that was the case with your mom when you were working with her and from other women that you've worked with? The sad reality of it is, right, like in my 15 years of working in games, I've had very, very little exposure to super senior women, right? Because that's just what the games industry is like. Like, it was like that when I was at Lionhead Studios, almost all men when I was at Hello Games, right? Mm -hmm. And then for the kind of initial inception of at least the Us Two Games team, that was the case. But I think kind of looking at myself a little bit, the, the reason why I asked you on, do you feel like you need to overcompensate in that way? Because... I've always felt like I'm a six foot four, like 192 centimeter guy with a booming voice. There's a lot that you get for free there, like the privilege of having that for free. You mm -hmm. end up being in a physical space, not necessarily on a video call, but you have a presence in a way that you massively benefit from. I didn't necessarily need to overcompensate in that area. It could maybe index more on the softer side of things in a way that a woman doesn't get the privilege or the opportunity to do, right? Because you're constantly having to go, take me seriously as someone who's not going to be overly emotional or take me seriously as someone who can command respect in the mm -hmm. same way. So yeah, I've massively benefited from my own kind of situation across that. But yeah, I mean, I've had very little opportunity to work with really experienced women. And, you know, you're the first person I've worked with on a really close basis who is that kind of superstar, right? It's been a good journey. <laughs> <laughs> I used to really resent the expectation that as women, we have to participate in these things. And, and for example, one of the things that I've had issues with is I think there's an expectation that as a woman, as a leader, you have to be nurturing and you have yeah. to be caring and you're very quickly either too weak or you're a bitch. In the past, I've kind of resented a little bit. I felt that people really expected from me a kind of nurturing and kind and motherly sort of attitude that I just didn't have. It just wasn't me. But I think that I've come to accept a lot of this as actually part of now my privilege, my privilege of being a woman who's a leader in the games industry and in a space where I feel like, you know, you guys are an amazing team and have always been great from the very beginning. And the founders of Us Two Games, Sinks and Mills, have created a culture in which I felt I could be my real self. And now that I have this 
privilege, then I feel a lot more comfortable with those expectations in a way. Where do you think you've fallen on that? And again, you've talked about constantly having to kind of bridge that gap or at least having to second guess your behavior, right? In a way that men don't always have to do. Mm-mm. But how would you describe, where's your natural groove on that, right? Like, where do you think your personality and your style of leadership fell? I think my true natural style in absence of context, and I think the context matters yeah. so much, yeah. but I think I'm always driven by ideas, by excitement around ideas about like what I like most is solving problems with people and going on an adventure with people. So my natural groove is neither the mother nor the authoritarian. It's more the kind of adventurer. And that's, you know, it's my natural fit. But like I said, I think context is so important. And today in the position that I have and being outside of a big company, being in a small company that's quite successful and that has a great culture and a great alignment between everybody in the company, I can maybe adopt a style, I can experiment even with my own style. And the demands are different, right? In comparison to 20 years ago, that 20 years ago, there was no expectations for companies to care about your well-being in the same way mm-hmm. or to support you in that way. Whereas, especially in the games industry now, which is quite a progressive industry, you're not only like a technical leader, sometimes you've got to be a coach, right? Sometimes you've got to be part therapist. Sometimes you've got to cover all these things that 20 years ago, it was like, your personal life is your problem. How you feel is your problem. Are you turning up and doing your work? Yeah, in which case I'm happy. So even the demands that you have as a leader, right, are different. And as you said, that context is important because you do need to wear hats at different times, right? And there's a lot of different hats to wear. I think that's the case these days in every position. I think as a CEO, maybe it's even more the case. Maybe it has always been because the people that you manage directly are very senior themselves and they're experts and they know better than you kind of their areas of expertise. So very often that position of coach and that position of support is the better place to be in. Now we've touched on us two games in the kind of unique sort of space that it's been for us, but maybe we should dig a little bit deeper into that. What do you think is unique about the flavor of leadership that works at Astu Games? The thing that I always come back to is we've had a big commitment to be transparent, right, with everyone and to take everyone on that journey. And actually, I think that's kind of representative of how leadership has gone on us two games and continues to be, is as long as we can be transparent about how we feel and how things are going, it builds trust with the people that we've got, right? So even when we're making decisions when they're not around, if we've been transparent in all other areas, they'll probably trust the decisions we're going to make when they don't see us, mm-hmm. right? I think that builds things. I think another thing that happens specific to us two games is the, the people that we've got. Like, we're very particular about hiring, right? As you know, we've gotten frustrated about before because we take a long time. But part of that is to get the right people and and for every single discipline to have an element of creative drive, no matter what discipline that you're doing, right? Like we expect programmers to care about game design and care about art in that same way. But it also means that you end up with a group of very outspoken people, right? Which is amazing because we get challenged every day and we come up with great ideas, but it can be a more difficult thing to manage as well, right? Like we've got a lot of big personalities, a lot of people who are not just going to sit down and kind of do what people tell them and and be a little worker bee. But it does mean it's a more difficult kind of environment to move in. I agree that one of the sort of both 
benefits and challenges of our culture is that degree of transparency. Definitely a benefit, but it comes with its challenges. And that culture of bringing people who really love making games and creating an environment where we say we want to make games that come from a very personal place. So people's hearts and creative ambitions are really placed onto the game and onto what we create as a company together. So, so for example, the fact that we do weekly AMAs, right? As part of our weekly gathering, there's always an anonymous channel for Q&A where anything can be raised and is often raised, where we have transparent pay banding that includes leadership. We share the financial results of the company and of the games, talking about profitability and cost of each individual game and people can see that. And that is great because I think we've hired really great people who really want the company to succeed, who want the teams to succeed, who want the games to succeed. We also have the great profit share. That means that if the company does well, they're going to do well. So I think the alignment of values and motivation is really, really strong, but it also means that you have to invest a lot in transparency in answering questions, in listening to people's thoughts and opinions on many, many different aspects. So for example, when we did the values exercise recently with to revisit our values, it was a very bottom-up kind of exercise. But I think that's kind of what makes it strong and stick is that people feel they've actually contributed to it. I think the other element that's perhaps unique, and I wonder what you think about it, is this balance between we're a super caring company, but at the same time, we're creatively ambitious and we kind of hold each other accountable. That balance between speaking up, expressing different ideas, experiencing different opinions on creative elements, and how you do that in a space of psychological safety, in a caring way, but in a way that doesn't hide away from conflict. I think this is a balance that we don't always strike right, right? I think it's a more of a dance. What do you think? No, it is. Like with leadership in general, I think it's one of those things that you won't ever get right because so many things change. But Hmm. you are right in that. You want people to contribute creatively. And then another thing that adds to the kind of leadership mix that makes it a bit difficult sometimes, but in an amazing way, is that a lot of the time people are joining us because they want to make something that's a little bit more innovative, like they're working at a big AAA company and they want more creative input and they want to make something that has values. And that in itself, like people oftentimes feel like they're joining us and they're going to make the best project of their careers, right? That they've had the most involvement in. So you're right, having that kind of everyone joining us or having already been here and then wanting to contribute creatively in that way and balancing it, whilst at the same time not designing by committee, we continue to try and kind of do that dance. At the end of the day, everyone can contribute creatively and everyone is part of the creative process of making a game, but it cannot be a flat structure because otherwise we'll never get anything made ever. And we'll end up with a really inconsistent creative direction for the things that we make. So we continue to try and do that dance between someone's going to have to make the calls on what we move forwards with and make sure things consistent. But I think it's more about, do people always feel listened to? Right? Do they feel like their input is seriously considered or are leadership just doing the dance of hearing people out and then they're going to go and throw it in the bin? Right. Mm-hmm. I think with us, it is a case of, yeah, we always have to listen. We always have to incorporate, but we have to balance that with really decisive leadership because, you know, we've been there in the past where 
we've been spinning our wheels on various parts of projects. And it's because we haven't made really decisive decisions that in the long run make people happy because it isn't always about doing the thing that everybody wants. Sometimes people just want to feel momentum towards a really mm-hmm. clear goal. That is the thing that excites them the most. So when we have a lot of people with a lot of great ideas, I don't think we're ever going to solve that. I think we're just going to continue to try and get better in different ways, but never at a point where we've perfected it. I'm happy with that. Yeah. So to close us up, I'm going a little bit off script here, but I just thought that maybe we could look forward a little bit personally, because we've talked about leadership being a journey and always being improving or being learning and getting better. And I was thinking, what am I working on personally on my leadership journey? And I think one of the things that I'm paying more attention to now is not to take up too much of the conversation, listen more and talk less. That's one of my current things that I'm going through right now of learning and trying to become better at that. Is there one thing that you're working on right now that you want to share with everybody? (laughs) Oh God, I've been thinking a lot about, and this is more of a kind of creative leadership thing than necessarily like a management thing, but thinking a lot about personal resilience, right? So, you know, doing any kind of creative endeavor, especially like, if you're a game director or creative director on something, you're putting so much of your personal background and story into something that, you know, if someone's going to be critical of it, you can get quite defensive or it can feel like a stake to the heart sometimes. But I think I need to, from like a creative leadership perspective, I need to know that once you decide to put a part of yourself into something, it's kind of no longer yours, right? And you you need to find a way to separate those things between who you are as a person and the creative kind of spirit energy you've put into something and what happens with it after the fact. We've been through quite a few game cycles now where this has been the case, and I am getting better at it. I don't want to pull back from it completely because, as you said, part of what makes us great is making experiences that have some personal kind of life stories injected into them. So I want to try and work on getting that balance right between putting my own personality into stuff, but protecting myself from the consequences of doing so. Making games is hard emotionally. And I do think that being a game director particularly is one of the hardest jobs in the industry because you're putting so much of yourself and leading a team and keeping a creative vision. It's a very challenging space. So, yeah. It feels a little bit like you're stood in a storm and everything is trying to blow you over and you're getting, you know, questions and you're getting criticism from all over the place and you're just trying to hold in the storm going, I won't be blown over. Believe me, (laughs) believe in me. To that, I have to say that there are people that face it in a very different way. Like, I think that that's (laughs) your wonderful personal style, but it's not the only way. No, no, no. Yeah. Well, I've really enjoyed this conversation and I could keep talking for hours, but I think we probably should wrap it up. It's been really wonderful. Thank you, Danny, for sharing all of that with me. Cool. Thank you, Maria. Everybody. Thank you. Bye-bye, people. Thanks for listening to this latest episode of the Rise and Play podcast. I am trying to grow a community of conscious leaders across the industry and beyond. So if you want to join this movement, Please share the podcast with other conscious leaders because we have so much more we can learn from each other. Also, please don't forget to follow the show so you don't miss out on future content. Every episode is packed with actionable insights that will help you improve your leadership skills now. And if you are interested in learning more on the topics that we discussed today, you can find more insights on riseandplay.io and there you will also find my free masterclass on conscious leadership. So have a great week 
and until the next time, 